Hi, I'm Byron Anderson, and I'm a PE. Hi, I'm Ted Corliss, and I'm a JD. What about, uh, I've seen uh, structures, and I know you have some photographs of a property that was grouted in Dunedin, and that particular property ended up caving in during the grouting process. Why was it that the property was fine when they were investigating it, but it actually collapsed while it was being grouted? Why did that happen? Um, well, it, it happened for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, as we talked about earlier, whenever you are designing a subsurface remediation program to stabilize the land and building and repair the foundation, the first thing you need to do is take a look at the site-specific geologic and geotechnical data and there are certain sites that have such bad geotechnical and geological conditions that they simply shouldn't be repaired they should be have the structures erased and be turned into a dog park um, <laughs> okay you know it's just there, there are certain properties and and you know and and of course i call it engineering in the rear in the rearview mirror you know looking back at that house and looking back at the geotechnical data associated with it you're like of course it collapsed um but you know there's a there's a real pressure from the insurance industry to remediate these properties and and they don't want to uh, go out and, and start writing checks for policy limits because then they get back to what we talked about in an earlier podcast the man with the white truck syndrome and right. so, right. you know, they don't want to, they, they want you to put, put the grout into the ground. They don't want to pay it off and leave an unremediated property. Um, and there's a great debate about that side as to whether or not compaction grout alone would be an adequate repair. Uh, and, you know, I don't, don't want to get particular about it, but the engineer that, that said compaction grout only, and there was another prominent engineer and says, no, 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 you, you need to underpin this and this should be a theoretical repair. This repair should never be undertaken. Uh, well, they ended up grouting it. And during the grouting process, if you, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier is starting at the deepest point. Let's imagine that you have a void at uh, 35 to 70 feet underneath the structure and you start the grouting process because you don't know exactly where the limestone is at, at 30 feet. Well, now what you're doing is just putting a gigantic amount of weight over top of this void, which ultimately can, can lead to the collapse um, of that void and lead to the collapse of the structure. Now, I'm not saying that's specifically what happened here. I'm just giving you a for instance. The other thing that we talked about is that during the compaction grouting process, you are filling voids, uh, but you're also compacting soil, which means that you're moving soil, you're moving groundwater around underneath the, the table. I'm sorry, groundwater around underneath the water table, underneath the structure, and there's a real incentive for the contractor to do this fast so that he increases his profit. Well, you know, you're doing all these things on an unstable soil profile, and, and you can be the literal uh, straw that breaks the camel's back and end up collapsing a structure. I mean, a good percentage of the catastrophic collapses that I have seen in my career have been uh, houses that were in, in in the process of being grouted and grouted incorrectly. Well, and I think uh, what a lot of people should also understand is given the dynamic nature of these repairs, it's best 
that when those grouting operations are being undertaken, and they can take, well, we're talking about programs that can take weeks or months to do what you're describing. Isn't that right? That's correct. Right. It's probably not a good idea for you to be in the house until the house has been cleared, which means your insurance company ought to be looking to put you up at another location for your own personal safety. So that's something I always want people to know. Um, all right. So you, good Lord, how much does 300 cubic yards of liquid concrete weigh? I mean, that's gotta be. It's a lot. It's in the millions of pounds. Yes. Right. And how many, let's see if I'm going to put 300 cubic yards in a single family residence, how many trucks of concrete is that? Well, generally speaking, the maximum a truck can hold is, is 10 yards. Um, you know, really it should be more like nine. So, you know, 300 cubic yards would be 30 ready mix concrete trucks. And they just be coming all the time with the concrete going in, going out, another concrete truck. That's a great way to develop a strong relationship with your neighbors. Oh, hey, absolutely. I've got about 30 concrete trucks going to be driving down the road here for the next three weeks. So stay out of the way. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, in cases that we've seen before and, and claims that we've been involved with, uh, whenever they're remediating your neighbor's house and all of a sudden they cause a sinkhole to open up underneath your house. I know I saw one one time I was standing out. This was in Spring Hill and they were grouting the house and all of a sudden we heard this rumbling sound and we looked to the right and the neighbor's pool collapsed uh, now the uh the depth of the grout as you mentioned there is a point kind of a terminus that is you can't get within 15 feet of the structure is that what you said 10 to 15 feet below grout like that uh 15 to 20 feet uh 15 under a regular structure and 20 feet under a pool okay and the idea there is if an insurance company is telling an individual that the only method of repair they're going to follow for a for a confirmed sinkhole house is grout how would they be able to certify that they stabilize the land if they leave that 15 or 20 feet unremediated well, I mean, there's a there's a couple different schools of thought associated with that. Um, you know, as I said earlier, during our investigation process, we are looking at potential causes of differential settlement to a property. Um, you know, if one of the things that we find is a combination of very loose soils and uh, denser soils underneath the structure, well, those those conditions can lead to differential settlement. Um, and then also the other thought is that the sinkhole conditions have weakened the soil profile to a point that it has caused damage to the structure. So therefore, the quote-unquote zone of influence underneath the foundation must also have weakened soils in that area. And so that's, that's where the chemical grouting comes in is that you are addressing these potential causes for di future differential settlement and also... Uh, f completing the process of stabilizing the land and building and repairing the foundation from the identified sinkhole activity. Got it. Now the chemical grout uh, is, I've heard it called a binary product Well, you put these two products together and then they kind of like the polyurethane, you know, I grew up in the Midwest where we used to put that stuff in our windows during the winter time. So you wouldn't get a draft. 
Sure. Is, is that the way the product operates? It kind of expands? Well, there's there's two different types of chemical grotting that is typically used. One is a two-part uh, expanding polyurethane uh, type material, uh, almost like great stuff, as I said earlier. And the other one is a uh, it's it, it it saturates the soil and then binds the soil together. Um, and the the two part um, expanding is the most popular uh, that's used. And, and yes, you are correct. Now, uh, there was an expression you used, and this is a good transition, I think, to moving to talking about underpinning. But you used an expression called injection piers. What is an injection pier? Uh, injection pier is a, a again, it's a what I would consider to be a hybrid system, in which uh, the idea is to underpin the structure, and then use the underpins as grout pipes. So first, you're going to underpin the structure as you as you normally would. And then after you've installed the underpins, you're going to inject grout uh, into those underpins. And typically, they are designed with perforations in the lower segment uh, segment or segments of the underpin. Uh, and the theoret theoretical idea is that you're going to underpin the structure and then you're going to uh, grout. And then that grout's going to come out of those perforations in the pipe and create a ball of, of grout around the bottom of the underpin and hopefully improve the soil. Is Has there been any, that I don't know, it, to me it sounds a little bit complicated, not complicated, but questionable that injection piers would work because, we're, especially if we're talking about 100 feet down, how are you going to keep the pier in such a, or the, the injection in such a way that you're going to have at least a, a, you know, a linear relationship? Am I explaining that? Yeah, well, if you if you look at the individual processes, whenever we're doing the compaction grouting, we're drilling our pipe down, and we just have one hole at the bottom of the pipe, the end of the pipe, and we're injecting the grout at that location. Then we're pulling our pipe up a little bit, injecting again, pulling it up again, injecting it again. So we know that we're getting improvement. And if there's an area that doesn't take grout in that instance, we're okay with that because that means that the soil at that specific location did not need to be improved with the uh, injection pier you don't have that extraction and, and injection process going on you're just putting the pin in and you're in, in, injecting it in one location and the fear with that is that the the grout's going to go down it's going to find the weakest link it's going to go out into that weakest link and it's never going to improve the soil you're certainly not improving the soil above where those perforations are in the injection pier you know, I think the easiest thing to look at is um, look at the amount of grout that is typically estimated uh, and used in an injection pier project versus a compaction grouting process. You know, in a compaction grouting process, we're talking about hundreds of yards of grout are typically going to be installed, where if you did that same job with injection piers, you may be getting away with 10, 20, 30 yards of grout. It, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of property owners, especially people who are involved with multi-unit losses, might be drawn to injection piers because it, it seems to me it uses less material, which tells me it's cheaper. Is that accurate? Yes, but also, you know, the devil's in the details. Um, you know, the, the idea is that sinkhole remediation is to stabilize the land and building and repair the foundation. 
if you look at the language that they're typically using in an injection peer uh, process and in a completion report and probably even a contract is they'll say like this is a foundation augmentation process well a foundation augmentation process is not the same as stabilizing the land and building and repairing the foundation Got it. And and for those of you who are, are familiar where that expression comes from about stabilizing the building and the land and repairing the foundation, that actually comes from a Florida law that says that when an insurance company undertakes a sinkhole repair, that's what they have to do. They have to stabilize the building. They have to stabilize the land and they have to repair the foundation. They have to do all of those things. And if their methodology doesn't touch each one of those bases, then they are not satisfying the requirements that your policy and the protection your policy provides to you. Let's move over to. The can, issue can, let me uh, let me finish yeah. up with. Uh, I, want, I got two thoughts here sure. that I wanted to share with you. Um, number one, we were talking briefly about multi-unit buildings, and if you're going to remediate a multi-unit building, or really any building that that's undertaking undertaking remediation. You know, I talked earlier about the the necessity to design the right program. Well, one of the things you need to understand when you're designing the right program is how the building was originally constructed. So if you're undertaking the repair of a multi-unit or even a complex residential structure, it's important to thoroughly investigate the property, if possible, get original construction plans, and make sure that you are improving the soil uh, and or uh, repairing the foundation underneath all foundation elements of the building, not just around the perimeter. Um, so what that means is that if you're looking at a multi-unit building, oftentimes you're going to have to go to the interior of the first floor units uh, to do some uh, foundation remediation work, which is, to say the le least, messy work. Because you're talking about drilling holes in the interior of the, of the, of the structure. I mean, you're going to go into my living room, move my couch, and then drill a hole 100 feet down. Yes, absolutely. Got it. Um, and then the second thing is we may be talking about townhome or duplex buildings, which are uh, one building but separately owned units within that building that would be separately scheduled and insured units inside of that building. And as we've discussed multiple times now, the standard is to stabilize the land and building and repair the foundation. Well, it doesn't say stabilize the land and half of the building or a quarter of the building. So it really becomes a very complicated legal uh, quagmire, if you will, associated with what do you do with the other half of the building that is not insured uh, by a, a specific carrier or even a worst case scenario, maybe the other half of the building uh, doesn't have property insurance at all. Um, and the homeowner doesn't have, you know, living on a fixed income doesn't have the money to undertake a, a sinkhole remediation for the whole whole building. Um, so I know that you have certain legal uh, questions about that. Sure. Um, and I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. But, the, but first of all, and, and finally, and I'll let you kind of take over and do the majority of the talking here is that, you know, a, a great friend of mine by the name of Vincent Daviero is a really cool guy. He used cool to be, name, yeah, yeah, Vincent Daviero. Sounds like a hockey player. <laughs> Daviero scores. Um, Vincent Daviero was the uh, quality control director for Firestone 
during the time period of the uh, Firestone uh, tire recalls uh, that was going on. And, and he taught me, and this is kind of the questions that I always uh, think about is, if you're doing a failure analysis or you're looking at a, a process and you want to know if that process was done correctly or why it failed, then you look at the M's. And there's five, maybe six M's, depending on who you talk to and, and what you're doing. And I would say that if I was on a board and or if I was a homeowner that was going to undertake a sinkhole remediation process and I was interviewing contractors, I would want to talk to the, them about the M's. And the M's break down like this. Number one, is the method correct? What are you doing for the method? Number two, and, and so for a failure, you could have a failure of the method, you could have a failure of the man. So the man being the people that are actually doing the work, what are you doing to supervise them? How trained are they? Are you using day laborers or are they actual employees of yours? The next M is material. So what material are you using and what are you providing to make sure that the material that is being installed underneath the property is appropriate um, and it's not watered down grout or whatever it may be. Uh, the next would be mother nature. So what are you going to do if we're in the middle of this remediation process and you have holes opened up all the way around my house and it rains for three days straight? Um, how is that going to affect my house? Is it going to wash out underneath my foundation? Uh, what are you going to do when I have a grout truck in the street and, you know, we get a torrential afternoon thunderstorm and it dumps two inches of rain on us and your grout is running down into the storm drain? Um, and so those are, you know, the, the M's that we uh, typically want to look at and consider when we're looking at the quality of a project that's been completed. Byron, very helpful. I know that this is very technical stuff, but I appreciate you slowing down on some of these issues and introducing these. I think what would be really helpful is if you could just give us some highlights, some key issues for those individuals that are hiring someone to do repairs on their home, or if they happen to be on the board of directors of a multi-unit property. Well, I would think that my, uh, you know, my, my key points would be understand that the uh, insurance carrier has the responsibility to put forth a design that stabilizes the land and building and repairs the foundation. Um, and if there are uh, deleterious soil conditions or problems underneath the structure or adjacent to a structure that aren't addressed as part of this remediation program, then it may be inappropriate. Uh, the second thing I would say is that, you know, uh, feel comfortable and interview both your engineers and your contractors and don't just listen to their sales pitches. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of good salespeople out there. You know, one of our favorite sayings that we've had throughout our uh, history as a company is there are some engineering firms that do a lot of marketing and some engineering firms that do a lot of engineering. And we like to think of ourselves as the, as the latter in that case. Um, and, you know, and there's a, there's an awful lot of good marketing that goes on. You know, one of my favorite things that I always uh, told homeowners to do is, you know, the guy sitting there selling you on the remediation project is not going to be the guy doing the work. One of my favorite things to do would be to take the sales guy and say, I tell you what, pick me up in the morning. I'm going to take you to breakfast. 
and he picks you up in the morning instead of you taking him to breakfast you say take me to five of your job sites right now i want to see what's going on out there um and you really get a peek you know behind the curtain associated with it um and then finally i would say that if somebody is proposing to you a solution that seems uh drastically cheaper than you know what has been prescribed by the engineers then there's probably problems associated with that remediation method it's uh it's it's again as i said earlier look into the fine print uh, are they really putting forth a program that's going to stabilize the land and building and repair the foundation very helpful well, let me uh, pick up a couple of key points from the legal perspective I want to reach back to something that we talked about in a previous podcast, and that is when an insurance company hires uh, a professional to assess the cause of the damage to your building, once they confirm that one of those causes, repeat that, one of those causes is sinkhole-related, they are obligated to stabilize the building and the land and repair the foundation, even if it calls for them to repair things that would otherwise have been excluded under your insurance policy. Give me a quick illustration of that. If for some reason there's a, there, your house was built in a way that isn't exactly the way it was supposed to be, but now it's damaged, it may be necessary to remediate the defective construction so that you can conclude and complete an effective sinkhole repair. And so if it's a sinkhole loss, they own the whole repair. Second of all, I want to go back to repeat something I we talked about a few minutes ago. And that is, if you are the individual, or your group, your board is responsible for the costs associated with using grout, then you should be very careful. Because the estimates associated with these repairs can vary wildly. Now, if an insurance company is on the hook, in most situations, if the estimates blow past even your policy limits, the insurance company is still going to be on the hook for that extra money. But if you are the one or your organization is going to be responsible for it, you need to be cautious when you're putting your own money in the ground. Uh, Byron, go ahead and tell us uh, your website address, too, so folks have additional questions about these kinds of issues, remediating sinkholes or anything related to it, they'll be able to find your resource. Sure, and well, I'll just, um, before I do that, I would say that there are some contractors that I'm aware of that will uh, entertain lump sum projects. Uh, meaning that if you have a you know 12 building complex, they will analyze the risk and benefits associated with getting all 12 buildings and then give you a lump sum contract versus a unit price contract. So that's a, you know, know that that's potentially available out there. Uh, I can be I can be find at SEI Florida. That's SEIFlorida.com. Great. And again, my name is Ted Corliss. I'm a JD, which is another way of saying I'm a lawyer. And I've spent the last 25 years as a property insurance or first party coverage lawyer for that amount of time. And I these issues associated with repairing sinkholes can be very complex and very daunting. And so if you have additional questions about the law or the other issues associated with sinkhole losses, you can find my operation at www.corlissbarfield.com 
or honestly, you can just type the word TED and the word sinkhole in Google, and you'll probably find me. We've enjoyed sharing these details with you, and we always appreciate hearing from you. You all be safe. Be well.